As professional communicators, sometimes even we must acknowledge there are no adequate words. As the COVID pandemic broke out, there were spontaneous standing ovations for healthcare workers in various parts of the world. In Canada, the United States, in England, France, Italy, India, South America, and Australasia. Downtown. Suburban backyards. Small families. Royal families. And politicians. Among those in the healthcare system who have helped are thousands and thousands of professional communicators who, just like the doctors and nurses, have never seen anything quite like this before. Today on Stories and Strategies, we check in with healthcare industry communications professionals to find out how they are doing. My name is Doug Dales. My guest today is Professor Anne Gregory, joining us today from Huddersfield in Yorkshire. Welcome back and second time on the podcast. Well, it's great to be with you again, Doug. Thank you for asking me. And you are a professor of corporate communication at the University of Huddersfield. You have your PhD in contemporary issues and public relations from Leeds Beckett University, a bachelor's degree in English and philosophy from the University of Leeds. You are a fellow at the Royal Society of Arts, a past president of the Chartered Institute of Public Relations and an honorary fellow with CIPR and a past chair of the Global Alliance for Public Relations and Communications Management. And we should begin by identifying your co-authors of this report, Dr. Bill Nichols and Professor John Underwood, both from the Center for Health Communication Research in Buckinghamshire New University. The National Health Service, the NHS in the UK, is the largest publicly funded health system, one and a half million staff, 3,000 of them are professional communicators. That's a big shop, as we would say here in Canada. Always like to start with the methodology. And whom did you hear from and how did you hear it? Well, Doug, first of all, I would like to acknowledge the work of uh, Bill Nichols uh, and John Underwood, my uh, co-writers on the research paper about this. They did the hard yards, to be honest. Um, and um, I work with uh, Bill and John very closely at the Centre for Health Communication Research at the Buckingham New University because they run an NHS certificate, postgraduate certificate for NHS communicators, as the title implies, and I'm my privilege is to work with them on that. I've also been a director in NHS hospitals for a number of years. In fact, since um, the 1990s, the late 1990s, um, I was a director in two mental health trusts and at an acute hospital as well. I finished that work just last year. So um, Bill, John and I uh, share a passion for the National Health Service and have worked long and hard with uh, National Health Service communicators, but I want to give them a shout out because they, they did the hard yards on this research. So the methodology, um, 
the contact with the NHS communicators was facilitated, first of all, through this certificate that uh, John and Bill run and I teach on. And um, through those contacts, we have close relationships with two key organisations, NHS providers, who um, are the sort of confederation of hospitals, mental health community trusts and ambulance trusts, and the NHS Confederation, which again is um, an NGO representing commissioners of health service and integrated care systems. So they're groups of health providers and local authorities who look after, if you like, a patch and they look after all the health-related issues for that patch. And uh, Trust Hospitals are members of the NHS Confederation as well. Um, we got 170 returns from seven different types of organisations, from hospitals to those who run the system, to those who work in communities, to um, mental health providers and, and, um, and ambulances as well. We were able to talk to all grades, so very senior managers, as they're called officially. Uh, so that's people who are on boards and those just below board level, to um, junior practitioners and what we might call the engine room practitioners but uh, we know who they are Doug they're the ones at senior grades just below board level where policy is operationalized and who take the weight really um, and we interviewed them about four periods of time immediately that uh, we found out about the pandemic to find out about how they were prepared and then we talked about as the pandemic struck so that was in mid-March for us in the UK. And then in that awful period, as we moved into national lockdown uh, through March and April, when the pandemic reached its peak, and then when the pandemic, the first wave subsided. So that was uh, in late May and June to get their immediate impressions of what that period of time would be like. So those sort of four snapshots in time, Doug, told us the story about how prepared they were, the sort of whoosh and rush of activity that happened when the pandemic struck. And then as they began to get into sort of a battle rhythm, as the pandemic uh, unfolded, and they're still in that battle rhythm, of course, and then first reflections on that initial peak. And that those were really important periods of time. Okay, let's get into what you heard. Um, you got insight in several areas. One, the challenges of scale and integration in this first truly global pandemic, lots of communicators at different levels doing different things. Secondly, impacts on communicators who were required to change and adapt um, and communication practices at very short notice and within, within those prescribed parameters. So there were a lot of moving parts, a lot of moving messages, and everyone had to stay on message at the same time. Walk me through these one by one if you could. Okay, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, the the size of the NHS is huge. Uh, 3,000 communicators, you can imagine, at all points in the system. So the NHS in the UK is funded by our Department of Health and Social Care, but it's an organisation called NHS England, which is one step removed from government, which really drives the commissioning of services within the UK. And what happens in a national emergency such as COVID is that NHS England actually co coordinates everything. 
they have special powers under, wait for this, the Emergency Preparedness, Resilience and Response Framework. So within that, those, the moving parts of that command and control structure, though, Doug, there were some differences in emphasis and some different reprioritizing of work. Some of them really interesting. So if we take sort of 100% as being a base level for activity um, and we look at the ambulance trust, so those are the people who take people to hospital, obviously, their media work increased up to 157%. Um, and I, we didn't ask this question, but I think that's really interesting because the hospitals were so busy, the media turned to them and they responded incredibly well to being asked about. And they're obviously frontline. They are taking people to the hospital, you know, so they were incredible sources of information for the media. But it decreased for the acute hospitals. Acute hospitals, in contrast, internal communications was hugely important for them. So that went up to 126% because they were ask, asking their staff to work differently. They had to switch their work to looking after these really poorly people. And we didn't know much about the disease at that stage. So um, getting people to engage with different ways of working was a huge job for communicators. Um, and interestingly, the system players, so the, these are organisations like the um, the regional um, NHS uh, uh, England representatives and the um, groups of care trusts, their partner communications went up to, listen to this, 243% wow. because they were trying to get the system to work together collaboratively. Amazing. Um, there is a lot of literature about crisis communications. Were there gaps that you found in the existing literature as it lended itself to the communications in this crisis? Yeah, really interesting this, Doug, because what we found, I don't want to bore everybody with a load of academic research, but what we found top line was that the public relations literature really focused on organizations and um, crisis writing is the third most popular topic to write about in the academic literature in PR which is fascinating in itself but it is very focused on organizations and you can see why you know responding to scandals you know CEOs misbehave or executive pay or accidents product recalls the focus is on reputation uh, uh, preservation and image repair and very little from the perspective of those actually going through crises which I found quite surprising really and it's almost as if even PR researchers are like outsiders looking in rather than insiders telling their story. So we turned as well to the health communication literature on pandemics, lots on, on panic, pandemics there. But again, the focus is on behaviour by populations, getting populations to act in a way that's going to preserve safety within the community. And I'm just amazed, Doug. I mean, if we look at how important communication has been in this crisis, it's almost as if in the literature, the communicators are peripheral actors. But we know they're centre stage. You know, leaders look to them. Uh, their, their communication changes things. Their actions matter. Communications in this situation is a matter of life and death. So I was really quite stunned that that internal perspective is not really focused on at all. <laughs> 
the channels and the tactics for communications was a, another aspect of the research. One of the most obvious pieces, and you mentioned this, the inability to meet in person or the limited ability to meet in person with one another. What did you hear about the channels as well as some of the tactics? What we found is communicators tended to go into work about three days a week and then two and a half days working at home, but a huge shift to mobile. So instead of meeting in person, text messaging, audio, video, video conferencing, um, that almost doubled, we found. Um, then other digital communications, not just substitutions for, for meetings, but web content and intranet, social media also increased. Uh, uh, Facebook became critically important. Um, and interestingly, some of the work that communicators have been wanting to do, like create close Facebook groups for doctors, for examples, and, and groups working in health, that have been resisted, suddenly they were embraced. Um, and they found that um, sort of daily staff communication uh, in hospitals became crucially important. Daily briefings, but these were not the long, dull emails. These were, you know, CEOs just jumping on, doing a three-minute video, quick conferences, fast moving and what really came into their own particularly in, in sort of hospital settings and in health settings were these use of um, short explanatory videos uh, not long documents you know the nhs is very bureaucratic you know a, an email is typically you know a page two pages three pages long out of the window and what obviously were least effective was sort of traditional media briefings and Posters, you know, because things were so fast moving, posters are, you know, all over hospitals, useless when the message is going to change within hours. Note to self to do uh, an episode on the expansion of fiber optic cable under the ground as we all move to this demand for online national communication leadership. You asked NHS communicators if they felt the content provided was valuable if the national communication strategy was effective and if national control by the mothership had been acceptable. Yes, you're absolutely right. So we call it command and control, as I mentioned before. Uh, and under emergencies like this, NHS England, uh, you know, the big, the big beast in London, uh, tells other health organisations what to do, what the content should be and how should they should go about their communications. And you can see why, Doug, because this is about one voice, about coordinated action uh, and trying to, behave, uh, to change behaviour en masse, you know, requires a coordinated effort. Mixed views, I think, is the honest answer to that. Um, a view that it's necessary but there are a number of issues that came up because of command and control. Broadly, the content was fine. No real complaints about the content, but issues around the lack of notice. So, you know, the content is this one day and then within 48 hours, 24 hours, sometimes different content. Um, changing guidance, changing facts as they were emerging, you know, just given to people and it was do this immediately. A key issue really, though, was around the lack of localization. So local hospitals, local community um, organizations of health, community care, they know their patch. 
And what they couldn't do was run a local campaign without getting permission and authorization for, for NHS England. And they found that the signing off process was slow and quite unresponsive. And sometimes, you know, they were not allowed to undertake these local initiatives, even though that they knew that it was necessary. I think the frustration was that, you look, there's a huge and skilled resource here out in the local communities. They know their patch. Um, we're not able to contribute to strategy. We're not able to initiate local communications that we know is absolutely right. And you're not responsive enough when we ask for permission to do these things. To the extent, really, that um, I wouldn't say that communication between, you know, the centre and, and local communicators have broken down, but they became very, very strained. And some work will need to be done to rebuild that relationship, which is a, sh a shame because 3,000 communicators, you can imagine what the resource is within that, Doug, with years of skill and experience. You think, well, there must be a better way to harness this, you know? That that whole resistance to top down, top down that's needed, as you as you illustrated, and yet bottom up that's also needed. That's such a similar narrative to what's happening in healthcare overall right now. One that started long before COVID. Once upon a time, this is my point. It was doctor knows best. Yeah, that was the the narrative in healthcare, um, as best illustrated in this short scene from the 1954 movie Doctor in the House, distributed by General Film Distributors. In this scene, James Robertson Justice is Chief Surgeon Sir Lancelot Spratt. Good morning, Sir Lancelot. Good morning. Who cares not for the sensitivities of his protégés, nor apparently his patients. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, sir. Are you just lie still, old fellow? I've just got to discuss your case with these uh, young doctors here. Take his pyjamas off, sister. You, examine his abdomen. <coughs> ah, take that grubby fist away. The first rule of diagnosis, gentlemen, eyes first and most. Hands next and least, and tongue not at all. Look! Have you looked? Yes, sir. See anything? No, sir. Very good. Carry on. Gently, man! Gently! You're not making bread! Don't forget to be a successful surgeon. You need the eye of a hawk, the heart of a lion, and the hands of a lady. You found it? Yes, sir. Well, what is it? A lump. Well, what do you make of it? Is it kidney? Is it spleen? Is it liver? Is it dangerous? No, don't worry, my good man. You won't understand our medical talk. Uh, you, what are we going to do about it? Um, cut it out, man. Cut it out. Where shall we make the incision? Nothing like large enough. Keyhole surgery. Damnable. Couldn't see anything. Like this. Now, don't worry. This is nothing whatever to do with you. Now, you. When we've cut through the skin, what's the first substance we shall find? Subcutaneous fatsa. Quite right. And then we come across the surgeon's worst enemy, which is what? Speak up, man! Blood, you numbskull! I think there is a, a number of Lancelot Sprats still about. <laughs> um, and and it, it, I think it's um, partly driven a, a little bit by fear, Doug, you know, that if we let people go and do their own thing, we're not going to get that coordination of voice. So you can understand why, and particularly in such a, you know, these are matters of life and death. You can understand why. But, you know, as one communicator said, 
You can't run communications in the regions and locally from a bunker in London. Um, and I wouldn't only say that it mirrors our experience in health, dog, but I think it mirrors our profession. That sometimes, you know, there are highly skilled people within our organizations who would be brilliant assistants for us, if you like, in communication, because they don't have the label communicator on them. We think, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. <laughs> Let's um let's go through the seven recommendations in the report um, as a, as our final piece of this episode. Yes, we we're just talking about communicators feeling disempowered and a bit frustrated by the embedded systems and processes that an emergency like this uh, does call for. Um, there were cumbersome command and control processes. So first rep recommendation is that we look at those systems, processes and practices um, in Nash right, right along the chain from national communication to local to see if these crisis communication pathways can be revised and make much slicker. The second thing is that... Um, Communicators and their teams were well prepared on the whole for the crisis, but there'd been no specific pandemic training. So we think that, you know, every emergency is different. So we're being told now that this won't be the last pandemic. So let's now get on top of proper pandemic, specific pandemic training for professional communicators to make this even better um, in terms of working alongside the national systems and the specific training. And then the third thing was around um, minority communities, actually. We've not talked about that, Doug. But there was, we believe, a national information deficit around communicating with national communities, which were more badly affected, actually, than the classic white communities in, in the UK. Not that communication was the only thing that contributed to them having worse health outcomes, but it was a factor. And we need to be much more sensitive to the requirements of minority communities in the pandemic. Fourth recommendation, we need to have education and training programs put in place that develop capability in digital and artificial intelligence in the communication com uh, community. They were pretty good and fast learning, but let's make sure that everybody is up to speed on the latest stuff on digital and artificial intelligence because, you know, they need that data to help them inform their communication. So, Big, big recommendation there. Recommendation five, we want the national associations, both the CIPR and maybe the CPRS in Canada, and uh, the professional associations representing healthcare communicators specifically to campaign for board level representation on communications because if it's good enough to have a communicator at the board during a pandemic and a crisis it's certainly good at, uh, to have them at the board at any other time as well the sixth recommendation was around the personal work and stress impacts on communicators during the pandemic i mentioned the engine house communicators and it was you know they were working these long long hours they were under incredible stress they rose to the challenge and they were the change in a lot of organizations they did take on digital first in order to help others get used to working digitally 
Uh, and then the second, uh, seventh recommendation was around uh, homeworking. I mentioned that a lot of communicators responded well to working at home. Um, they didn't have to travel to work, so they had additional time. <laughs> but really interestingly, a reflection of this was that they missed those water cooler move, uh, move moments. Ah. And that wasn't just, you know, whew, let's have a rest and let's have a cup of tea. It was about being embedded in the fabric of the organization. It was those incidental conversations that are the life brought really for a, a professional communicator, that sense of the organization just being part of a, a communicator's responsibility. So if we're going to move to homeworking, there needs to be a really sensitive review of both the psychological as well as the efficiency and effectiveness implications of this. Yeah, we need serve and return as human beings, don't we? Absolutely. Oh, and thank you for sharing this research. As you and I speak, the the, uh, the research paper is, is not quite published yet. Once it is, we will put it in the show notes to this episode. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for your, for sharing this. Great to get together with you again. It's been brilliant to talk with you again, Doug. And uh, it's been a real privilege to do this research. And I hope there's some insights as well there for people who are listening to your fantastic podcast. Oh, thank you. If you'd like to send a message to my guest, Anne Gregory, you can email her at a.gregory at hud.ac.uk. That is in the show notes. If you liked what you heard today, we're hoping you choose to subscribe to Stories and Strategies. You can receive updated episodes automatically. Also hoping that you choose to follow and rate this podcast on any directory. And would you do us a favor? Recommend this podcast to one friend. If you have an idea for an episode, we're all ears. Uh, just send us a note at info at jgrcommunications.com. Thanks for listening.